But here's the thing that people don't understand about this current proposal, it's simply a test. That's the Let's try and put our money in places where the market does look like it's growing. Do we value efficiency more or do we value the idea of decentralization and trustless systems more? That's elsewhere? such a fantastic point. Arana Ventures. Um, all right, well, I'm Parth. This is Abdullah. We're the, uh, the founding partners of Arana Ventures alongside Jackson Dearborn. Um, yeah, we're really here to just like talk a little bit about crypto, just some of the stuff we've been looking at, and uh, just put it in video form because, you know, we look at this stuff all day um, and try and you know, get some content out there. So that's really it. Uh, we got some talking points. A lot of it's just going to be like a pretty chill dialogue between the two of us. Um, one of the first things I actually want to talk about was a conversation on Saturday I had with one of my friends. We were um, going to the groceries to like buy dinner. Um, we were making swordfish for for a bunch of us. Nice, exotic. For the uh, Big Ten Championship, ah. right? It's because we were going to go watch that. And on the way, um, he, he wanted to like ask me about crypto because he's always been kind of interested, but he's always been on the purview. So he asked me about crypto and the first question is always is like, so, so like what is crypto? And I kind of explained to him, you know, how we define crypto, which is really just like a token on the blockchain at the end of the day, a way to represent a form of asset on the blockchain, whether it's a monetary asset or, you know, something less fungible. Um, and then he went into, okay, but what's the utility? Like when you invest in a crypto, what's like, where's the value accrual, right? Like very basic questions. And I explained it to him, I explained to him, you know, you got crypto coins and you got crypto tokens. The way we explained it in the pitch deck, that whole situation I talked about, how Bitcoin has a different accrual system and a different incentive model and a different business model altogether in economy than Ethereum and how uh, Ethereum as a coin is different than Uniswap as a token and so forth. And at the end, he understood. He did. And that's usually what happens, I feel like. If you like sit down with someone for 20, 30 minutes, unless they're like actively trying to rebute it, which often happens, if they're actually open-minded and trying to understand it, it's not that complicated to like explain. At a high level, at a high it level, certainly can be At a high level. Then what, what that made me think, is I've had this conversation like multiple times, and what that made me think of is like, why do we as a community have such a difficult time explaining these concepts? It feels like in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, if the person's really trying to listen for 20, 30 minutes, you can explain it at a high level, right? And they'll understand it to a much higher degree than they did a half hour earlier. But as a community, we do like a really poor job at that, at trying to get people to hop on board with the very like clear-cut unified definition. Like if you think about what is a stock, clear-cut unified definition, right? What is a loan? What is a derivative? What is a crypto? It's like, it's like, why is it so difficult for us to create that unit, like, like 
universally agreed on definition that we can just, because that's a big thing to like get people involved. I think part of it is because there's so many different caveats. Because when you're explaining something like a coin versus a token, or even if you're talking about a token, a token in and of itself can have multiple different values. It has multiple different purposes, functions. And because of that, when we describe what a token is, we go A, B, C, D, and then automatically you typically jump into some sort of technicals involving this. But do you need to? There, you don't have to for the overall view. You, you right. really don't, it's not necessary. Like, um, but even for us though, when we're trying to understand a token, it took some time to sort of really understand the intricacies of it, or to understand how value is because you have to look at multiple projects to really understand it and go into the business models behind it. You got a whole economy behind tokens backing them up and you have all these different mechanisms behind it. But there is certainly a better way to distill what a token is. But in the back of our heads, we know it's all of these different things. I wanted to ask you, I never really got to dive deep into it myself. Yeah. Um, Uniswap governance, I saw a lot of people for their, the proposal to essentially um, do a little bit of a fee split to token holders. And then I also saw some like pushback. I don't know what the pushback's about. My guess is regulation, but if you want to kind of dive into that. Yeah, so essentially back in July, I mean, the idea has been ruminating for a while and this gets, gets to the idea of what like a token's purpose is. Yeah. So at the moment, Uniswap, Uniswap is, a, is an AMM. And it allows, which basically means you're able to pool money and allow for people, it makes it easy for people to swap different assets. Now, Uniswap has a token. This is what that means. Right now, the purpose of the Uniswap token is to regulate the application itself, the Uniswap application itself. And this is called governance. Now, there are a number of different stakeholders, people who, or rather shareholders, who own parts of, of the overall of Uni, and they regulate how it's directed, what sorts of other protocols it launches on, uh, what other you know, fee switches it has. Now, the purpose of the Uni token right now is completely relegated towards governance. It doesn't have any other real utility. And that gets into the idea of like, how should you price something that's arbitrarily valued. I mean, governance is a very arbitrary yeah. concept. So how do you value that? The market just values that right now. That's at the yeah. moment. There's no, there's no one way of valuing no it. fundamental like, you're right, you can't, value yet. Exactly. You can't value it like you would a traditional equity. Yeah, because there's no um, value accrual mm -hmm. or income for you as the token holder. Right, token holders yeah. don't currently attain revenue. Yeah. Now what the fee switch is, is something in the code, we'll just yeah. explain it simply, something in the code, you switch it on and you're allowed to send some of the revenue that the protocol earns to Uniswap token holders. That's essentially saying that dividends are paid out to the people who are holding the token, which is called yeah. the UNI. And a lot of pushback has been received for this. This proposal came out around July and a number of liquidity providers stated that they don't want this to go through because it cuts into their fees. Okay. People who are, who are providing liquidity on Uniswap 
they're not going to attain as much yeah. money as they would. Okay. And something about Uniswap, I mean, we, as we know, because we work closely with Uniswap, uh, we work on, you know, we use pools V3 and we're subject to um, impermanent loss constantly. Yeah. And so that's one of the citations that these liquidity providers use that we have impermanent loss. We have a very small margin that we're currently dealing with because of these different issues. And if you take away a piece of that and give it to token holders, our margin is even smaller. It's yeah. razor, razor thin. And so that's the main pushback from liquidity providers at the moment. So with liquidity providers, we know, we've seen it ourselves firsthand, how bad impermanent loss can get. Um, is there a serious liquidity concern for Uniswap long-term? For Uniswap long-term, right now it is in comparison to practically every other every other decentralized exchange, it has the highest TVL. Yeah. And it has the highest TVL across multiple different chains. And that TVL is concentrated, so it's even compounded right. exactly. in terms of its ability to provide liquidity. Right. If there's no concentrated liquidity, everybody's just burning fees strictly based on the volume. Mm -hmm. Great. If there is concentrated liquidity, you're gonna have two types of people. One, the people that don't want to concentrate, and two, the people that do. This is kind of like a, it's almost like a prisoner's dilemma. Mm -hmm. If nobody uses concentrated liquidity, then everybody makes an, a, a decent amount of money, right? But if some people use, if, if you use concentrated liquidity and I don't, you're gonna make a ton of money in that range, mm -hmm. right? So then I'm disadvantaged for not using it. But if I use it too, then we both make practically nothing, maybe even lose, because we're both splitting the same amount of money we would have if neither of us had concentrated liquidity, but we're taking on way more impermanent loss, right? So it does kind of feel like one of those prisoner dilemmas where it, it just ends up because of literally what the definition of that game theory, everyone just gets bucketed into that lose-lose quadrant. That's what it feels like. That may be, that's like one of the main yeah. arguments against Uniswap V3 and concentrated liquidity in general because it's supposed to provide a higher degree of capital efficiency. And, and it does. And it does. It does. Right. For the trader, it's, it's amazing. Exactly. For the trader, right. it, it's great. But yeah. liquidity providers, they're having a lot of pushback because of that same exact mechanism. Yeah. And it's, again, it works really well from the, when you're swapping. I mean, when you're swapping on Uniswap, the, the slippage is very, very low. It's yeah. really, really effective. Yeah. And th that's one of the things that you need to also take into consideration with these markets is like, where is the liquidity going to go towards? Because that's, pri that's probably one of the most important, if not the most important factor, is how deep is the market. Yeah. And for Uniswap, it's, it's, they have a deep market. Yeah. And they have built their brand name ever since the start of DeFi. Yeah. And simply because of that, they're launching on multiple different chains, on multiple different L2s, yeah. multiple different, and now on L1s as well. So, because of that brand recognition, you're going to get people gravitating towards Uniswap. Now, the, fee, the issue with the fee switch is that liquidity providers are threatening to take away their liquidity and go somewhere else. But here's the thing that people don't understand about this current proposal, it's simply a test. That's the thing with governance right now and with DeFi in general, a lot of things are being tested out. That makes sense. A lot of people say that Uniswap has grown to this, it's a, in, in comparison, relatively to other DeFi applications, it's a behemoth, it's big. Yeah. And they don't want to tarnish its reputation, they don't want to ruin it. 
That's what these liquidity providers are saying. However, that's an issue because we know when these protocols stop innovating because they get too big and they want to preserve their sanctity, it becomes, yeah. it, it's a bad, they, they start falling inevitably over time. And it's not like, they're like a big fish in a tiny little pool right now. And that pool is about to get a lot bigger, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, all right, I wanna, I wanna switch to Uniswap, uh, the regulation that this brings. So yes. it's hard to say it's a security because it's hard to say that, that as a token holder, you're owning it to earn a profit because really the utility is governance. So a lot of people that own it, own it to be involved in the voting. For now. For now, right? You add that fee switch, all of a sudden, yes, it is absolutely one of the utilities is to earn a profit. Correct. Absolutely. Yep. Now, then it brings into the, the final component, which is by a third party, which is obviously one of the main components that blockchain technology, um, you know, improves on and actually questions yes. is it's not a third party if it's a million, if it's decentralized across a million parties, right? So say if Uniswap is completely governed by a DAO, it's the um, Uniswap Labs ceases to exist in the, in the near to medium future yeah. and so on. Is it, is it a security in your opinion? So. I don't remember the exact exact verbiage of the Howey test. It's yeah. either the efforts of a third party or the efforts of others, and others can it can be said that others could be just a bunch of decentralized and who, uh, individuals. Who are the others? Isn't it the it's like liquidity providers? Yes, that's the it's one. the people voting, which is yourself if you're the token holder, mm -hmm. and I mean if there are updates, then you obviously have the developers in the back end, right? But so this is an interesting idea because so if you have say if you're a large stakeholder if you're a large shareholder in in uni yeah. you're likely going to be involved in governance yeah. if you are involved in governance you're directly partaking in the ins and outs of the protocol right meaning it's not from the efforts of others at that point you're putting in your own effort yeah so Here's, here's something that would actually be an interesting switch. So with a fee switch right now, you can say that the profits are given to uni token holders, right? You can say that, or you can say the profits are given to voters, are given to people who actively partake in governance yeah. because then they're putting in their efforts and therefore the efforts of others isn't even considered, it's your own effort that you're putting so in. So say you hold the token and you don't vote, which is the most token holders. Most people, correct. How does that fit? That, from this definition that I just explained, doesn't. It would, it would be a security yeah. from that sense. Yeah. Yes. So, me personally, I think it's more. I mean, I could see that. I think it's more about the decentralization, right? Liquidity, because this brings into the question: Why are there security laws? And I remember you did research on this a little while ago. Security. A, a big reason for security laws is to prevent essentially a, a central party that has control over the whole thing, mm -hmm. essentially having too much power over your financial situation, right? Right. Security laws exist to regulate that central party. If there is no central party and is decentralized across many different, um, you know, constituents that have, there are incentivized to act fairly, yes. then 
the, the reason for those security laws to exist, in my opinion, are kind of like not obfuscated or um, are like moot, essentially. It's like, they're not, some of them are. I'm not, I'm not saying there shouldn't be any mm -hmm. security laws. And, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is a lot of the current regulation doesn't need to apply, right? A lot of the security regulation does not need to apply to things that are decentralized because those initial regulations existed to regulate a central party that had too much power, which decentralization, that's the whole point of it. It's getting rid of that. Right. So you don't need the laws that exist to regulate that because that doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to say. Right, because fundamentally, yeah. the, the main purpose of the SEC is to protect yeah. people. It's yeah. to protect people who are just retail investors, people who don't right. have insider information about certain equity or certain, yeah. certain security. And I mean, this was created after the entire debacle in, uh, in the 1920s, 1930s. So it was, I believe it was one of the earliest decisions made by FDR with the New Deal. It was, he established the SEC. And it was primarily because the stock market got completely bloated. It became yeah. a huge bubble in around 1929. And it came crashing down because a lot of the, re the reason it got bloated was because insiders were trading based off of insider information. The public yeah. did not know what was going on and they were constantly lying. There was a lot of fraud going on as well. And there was no regulation to control that. Now, you're right with a decentralized entity. If you have the dissemination of information across multiple different parties, there's no real insider. And that's the beauty of a blockchain is because everything is out there. At least it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be transparent, clearly out there. This is why you have decentralized boards because instead of a board of directors making decisions, you have like a govern. You have a DAO. You have a yeah. DAO governing these different uh, these different protocols and entities. And so from that perspective, there should be a self-regulating aspect here, a self-disclosure aspect, because blockchain is supposed to be transparent. Yeah. Companies, securities. Those can be complete black boxes. Yeah. So that that I agree with that. That's certainly an argument that's being brought up by the crypto community. And it's being brought up for because of a very recent event that happened, being FTX. This is um, I, I explained it this way to someone that asked me because because he was like, yeah, I mean, when crypto's more regulated, things are going to work out, right? And I was like, as long as it's regulated well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the issue wasn't, I mean, there was, you, you, there is definitely a lack of regulation with crypto, but the issue wasn't a lack of regulation when it comes to FTX, I'm yeah. referring to FTX now, by the way. The issue was a lack of transparency. Mm. Um, because there is this weird gray area where if you're a crypto exchange, because there's not a lot of regulation, you're not gonna be regulated by the SEC or, or you can be more of a black box than a TradFi exchange, right? Also most TradFi exchanges, if not all, are public. Um, Especially if you're just not registered in the US. Right. You're in the Bahamas. And, yeah, so. you're in the Bahamas. So that's one part, right? The second part is, okay, there's a lack of regulation, you're not being regulated by the governments. You're also not on the blockchain. Your side, you're, you're, you're on the side of the blockchain. You, you work with the blockchain, but you're not on the blockchain. 
So your centralized exchange that is not being regulated by either side. Now a decentralized exchange is regulated by the blockchain. Yes. But TradFi exchange is regulated by, by current regulations, right? But that little gray area is regulated by neither. That's true. Yeah. Right? You need to regulate it with one of the two, right? The, regulating with the blockchain is just technologically the superior way. It is. It allows these governments to do their job way more efficiently. It's not taking away from the job. It's not impeding on their job. It's helping them with their job, right? If you took FTX and had their proof of reserves, proof of liabilities, essentially the two aspects of their balance sheet, yeah. reserves, liabilities, and put that on the blockchain, and essentially they had to have it in a wallet that was publicly known, like this is the FTX wallet of reserves, right? Then everybody, when they put in a Bitcoin, could see their Bitcoin in the wallet, be like, FTX has it right there, if they choose to see it, right? And at any point, if there was any horseplay, any sort of manipulation, thousands of people all across Twitter within seven, eight seconds would call them out on it and start reporting it to the SEC because we see it all the time. It's self-enforcing. Right? It is yeah. absolutely, and it's incredible. Um, and, you know, I, I do think eventually it takes time because the people that, that in, in the government are not, they're not the crypto blockchain demographic. Because what is the crypto blockchain demographic? It's, you know, young techie people and people in politics tend to be, tend to skew older and have more of a traditional background, right? And their backgrounds in politics, like it's pretty unrelated to tech. Um, although maybe it shouldn't be, it is. So it's like, it's, it's gonna take time as long as there's no like, I'm glad the DCCPA bill didn't come out uh, because it wasn't, it wasn't well done. And it wasn't well done because it's not well understood enough yet. And it's also, blockchain is not developed enough yet for us to understand what regulation, good regulation is going to be in the long term. Yeah, and that's in part yeah. why you have like the Ripple case with the SEC taking so yeah. long, because in part the SEC is confused. Yeah, they don't have the best arguments and judgment calls to be made, right? Crypto hasn't done a great job at you know getting early adopters. It's gotten innovators, it's gotten the super early people like us, but it hasn't really gotten to those everyday use cases where people will actually use them in their normal life, right? In IRL, in real life. And, you know, looking at that, you'd, you'd look at something like DeFi and hope that they would find use cases eventually in this bear market, which is a builder's market, they would find use cases to address. Mm -hmm. And as we're looking at DeFi, um, it doesn't feel like that. Right. It, does, it feels like the same thing it was two years ago, except with more pins and needles. Unnecessary complexity. Right. It's like, it's essentially the same. It's like you take something from two years ago and you add some gadgets to it and make it a little cooler. There's no sense of like an ability to expand out of its current market and start adopting new people and growing its market. Right. right. 
which is a little concerning, which is why Abdullah and I said, there's a lot of money there. There is a lot of innovation, but it's not the sort of innovation that's gonna grow the market. So us putting our money there might not make a lot of sense. Let's try and put our money in places where the market does look like it's growing. So markets that are focused on user adoption, right? So that's been like a little bit of color background as to like how our narrative has shifted over these past few months. Um, and now we're looking more at gaming and social, right? And then also some of the infrastructure that helps support those projects, right. exactly. whether it's like something like an IMX or something like an anchor, which has some like gaming, RPC or staking kind of things like that. Um, so yeah, I'm just gonna go with that. You can get started on like what you've seen. I know you've looked into the mutable. If you want to actually talk a little bit about mm -hmm. what you've seen with the mutable, because yeah. I know you've done a lot of deep research there. Yeah. yeah. So the first thing before that, it's like we're looking at products here that there is not going to be any sort of adoption for anything built on the blockchain until its use case is multiple X better than what is currently in place. Here's sort of here's sort of an interesting bias that we have here just in the US or just in the Western world is that we have so much infrastructure and things in place, just everything is taken care of for us. Yeah. And that's a huge blessing in and of itself. But that also means we don't get to experience, we, we don't know the struggles that other people go through and in, in other countries where you have like these dictatorial, dictatorial regimes and they don't have, you know, the next day you don't know if your currency is gonna be multiple X inflated and you won't even be able to buy a piece of bread. So that's one of the issues that blockchain really solves in the broader context where it really becomes applicable. When Armageddon comes, when your country, when you lose complete trust in your country and the infrastructure around you, you're going to turn to trustless systems because you can't trust that centralized entity anymore. Yeah. The current centralized entities around us, obviously there are trust problems here and there, but they provide us with so much efficiency. And that's where we get to the debate of what do we hold more dear from a practical perspective? We can say one thing from a thesis perspective, but from a practical perspective, do we value efficiency more or do we value the idea of decentralization and trustless systems more? We have the privilege of selecting between the two when we're in the Western yeah. world. We don't have that. People don't have that privilege elsewhere. That's such a fantastic point. So that's one thing we're combating right now because when we're making investments, we sort of have to look towards a side of efficiency right now. Because if we completely look towards a side of decentralization, and we, we are very much ingrained in believing this thesis. We love the decentralization and trust this thesis because it, we believe it's right. We believe it's true. When centralized entities fall, it's what people will naturally go towards. And we see that in other places. Yeah. But from an investment perspective, right now, we have to look at efficiency. We have to look at adoption. We have to look at what draws eyes, what is flashy, and make good investment decisions from there. So to go off that really, really quick, this last cycle, remittances, which in my opinion, are one of the most clear, impactful use cases crypto has ever brought to the table. Remittance, Tokens did nothing. Yeah. Did nothing. Um, which probably says more about timing 
rather than technology. Mm -hmm. It's more that, because I truly believe, yes, it is, it is eventually going to happen where people are going to go, go toward crypto for remittances. They already do to a degree. They do. Because if you look at like yeah. smaller countries, right, yeah. the number one use case in like say Venezuela for DeFi is remittances. Yeah. But from a volume perspective, relative to everything else, it's right. very small. Okay, okay. So it's you're saying there is adoption there. It's just there isn't volume. There, there simply isn't enough adoption because one, one of the one of one of the issues with smaller, these say third world countries or countries with less infrastructure, is that in and of itself they don't have this much infrastructure. Yeah. They don't have these wallet setups. They don't have these smartphones. This will come over time. But simply because of that, they, they're not able to access these DeFi solutions. But there are multiple, if you look at it from a relative perspective, say you're there's a billion dollars being traded on a certain yeah. DeFi platform in the Western world. You're, that accounts for maybe 1% of all the DeFi transactions yeah. in the Western world. Now, if you look at something similar, if you look at remittances in say Venezuela, all the, take all the DeFi transactions that occur in Venezuela, over 70% will be for remittances. Yeah. But it won't be like a billion dollars. Right. It'll be right. maybe that makes sense. a couple hundred thousand. That makes sense. Philippines though, a lot of that was gaming. That was gaming, I was infinity. But imagine you're like part of the gaming community and all of a sudden these articles from these like crypto bros come out, like us, um, and it's like articles of like gaming is the new way to make money and you're, whole thing is like you got back from your nine to five, which is probably more like a nine to seven, and you ate your dinner and you're just trying to chill and game. And now it's more about money again. Yeah. It completely ruins your hobby, yeah. you know, something you love. But the truth is that's not what crypto gaming is about. That's what it was made to be, right? Crypto gaming is not about making money. Crypto gaming is about ownership. It's about ownership. And yes, ownership can lead to monetary gains. Can. Doesn't have to. And for most people, it won't. In digital games, you don't own your cards, right? If the game goes down or anything, you don't have the cards. You can't take those cards elsewhere. It's just there, right? And it's part of their database. With NFT technology, um, you actually own the cards in your wallet and you can trade them on an open market, mm -hmm. right? You're not like buying a pack from them and then like having to like do nothing with those cards. You can actually openly trade them with other people all around the world instantaneously, right? right? Without a centralized party having to do it, take, take some massive cut, maybe it's like, right? Yeah. It's just done in an open setting right and right. think about it and that's incredible right and yeah think about when you're like say you're a kid right say you're you're just playing your game for fun you have the perception that you actually own what you're owning. Yeah. you're not thinking about there's a database somewhere else that activision yeah. blizzard owns your items right it's i actually own this item but you really don't so from that perspective it's like you think do you have to advertise to gamers that you really 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 own this item they have to push the crypto narrative to them. I don't think that's necessary. In the back end, when you're just creating a game, just put it on the blockchain and make a seamless marketplace exist where people can yeah. trade. 
because kids, for example, they're not gonna think about ownership and custody of their stuff. They automatically think in their heads, that sword in that game, I actually own it. They won't know they don't own it until everything crashes and they lose their account. Yeah. But that is only relevant when the game goes down, right? When yeah. the game goes down. So at that point, it's just like, you don't even have to say this is crypto-based, this is blockchain-based. That's just a de facto rule in the gaming industry that you put stuff on the blockchain because it's the right thing to do, it's the better thing to do, and it makes your game economy more effective and efficient. Yeah. You don't even have to advertise it. Yeah. Currently, right now, the state of the state of gaming at the moment for blockchain games, it's pretty much, you know, everybody's looking for the big hitter. Everybody's looking for that big title, and that is what that's typically the case in uh, traditional in tra traditional gaming. I mean, one of the biggest games like that everybody's anticipating is the next iteration of GTA. I, I already know what you're saying. What are you gonna say? It's been years since I played like the last GTA came out. It's been years. Yeah. It's like half a decade. It takes so long to create a good game, especially an open world game. Now, any game that advertises that they're on the blockchain and they're an open world like RPG, an MMORPG, right. that's not very good. Imagine doing what it takes, um, what's a GTA uh, creator? Uh, Rockstar. Rockstar Games, yeah. that's right. Uh, what takes Rockstar Games five years and like hundreds of millions of dollars? Yeah, do that with like tens of millions of dollars. And like yeah. two years, and on the blockchain. Exactly. It's like no, yeah. <laughs> no. What are you talking about? No. Are you like like how is that even like? It's not feasible. Like not feasible. How, how is it even remotely like anywhere close to feasible? Mm -hmm. Not at all. That's so, where you're gonna get like smaller games. That's why all, yeah. our entire focus is on indie games, yeah. smaller games that don't have too much open world complexity, or rather, instead they're they're just. They provide you an instant feedback loop and are exciting and entertaining to play. And somewhere in there, and they're catchy. They're, yeah, and they're catchy, and they, you know, they're they're appealing and a very seamless user interface. Yeah. But the crypto aspect of it is very much going to be on the back end. Yeah. It's not going to be. We're not going to call it a play to earn game. Yeah. No, that's because that's not, that's not the purpose of gaming in the first place. It's for entertainment purposes. Playing to. Entertain. Right. Keep it at that. Don't even <laughs> change that model. Right. That that model works and has worked and will work. And the, the thing is, in the back end, we can make stuff more effective and efficient and introduce crypto concepts. We can introduce tokenization, yeah. but we don't have to force feed it to people. That's what turns yeah. people off. Yeah. So that's that's the current state of what we're looking at. That's the market we're trying to really identify the games and the developers and the studios that really know that that is the direction they need to go. And those are the games that will be successful. And um, say, for example, Immutable is doing a better job of that nowadays. They're bringing on games and partners who are trying to create genuinely good games. And they're just built on the blockchain. They just so happen to be built on the blockchain. That's the case. Now, Immutable itself is also a game studio. The way it came about is because they were trying to develop a game, but they got frustrated with, with blockchain game dev because it was very, very clunky and so nowadays they have like four different SDKs they have a very responsive API and so they're really iterating on their dev relations and seeing how they can provide developers the tools to create these really effective games and the thing is you can unbeatable it's an L2 so you can really transact things very very quickly and you have ownership of them yeah. and you can mint thousands and thousands of NFTs almost instantaneously 
That's right. And that's exactly what stuff like Gods and Chain is doing. Yeah. Hopefully, Luvium does well. They're calling it a AAA game. I'm not. I don't believe it. But hopefully, it does well. It would be yeah. nice to see a game like that succeed as well. Something more open world, not just a card game. Um, yeah. Because I personally like the more open world games, and I think you do as well. Yeah. So it would be exciting to see something like that. It's yeah. It's gonna take time. I don't think we have this one back. All right, let's um, cut it there. Yeah, I think we're gonna cut it here. Um, yeah, thank you. I guess this was it. Really appreciate it. I doubt any of you have survived this far. How long has it been? Fifty-seven minutes. minutes. It's better be fifty-seven. All right, peace.